He's already been dead and it's messed with his head. It's John's post-life crisis. Welcome to John's post-life crisis. I am your host, John Johnston, founder and manager of cornnation.com. Your Nebraska Cornhusker site of trying extremely hard to find content that's interesting. I am joined today by Professor Ed A. Morse, professor at Creighton University School of Law. This episode, we're going to talk about whether governments, state or federal, should provide universities or other organizations with some kind of protection against lawsuits regarding the COVID-19 virus, because we can't get away from this subject, unfortunately. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, John, and thanks to all the people at Corn Nation for watching. the, where, where do we start? I guess you start with the, just the base question. Uh, I mean, should the federal government provide sweeping protection to, let's start with universities. Well, you know, one of the problems uh, that is presented in this environment is that there's just so much uncertainty. I know you have a background in um, IT uh, areas, and I think there's some of the same kinds of uncertainty in tracking disease transmission as there is in dealing with uh, the damages and harms caused by, say, a breach of personal data. So there's a lot of uncertainty about um, how how harms happen, where they're coming from, etc. And couple that uncertainty with potential legal claims in a system that makes those claims very expensive to defend. And I think you've got an environment that might um, deter legitimate productive activity. And uh, that's what's motivating the concerns. uh, That's what's motivating folks who are looking at uh, providing some limitations on liability in this area. So those, those key uh, features are uh, are uh, concerns that are motivating the, the legislation that uh, has been out there. Uh, uh, we've got a federal uh, bill that was just proposed uh, last week uh, the, in the Senate uh, that, that seeks to remove this whole area to uh, uh, federal courts and severely constrain the kinds of causes of actions that could be brought against uh, all kinds of um, uh, defendants, including uh, universities and uh, as well as uh, healthcare providers, businesses, etc. So, I mean, is that a good idea? I mean, in the interest of full excl- disclosure, uh, my career, business career, IT consulting, I've always kind of looked at it, lawyers and thought, well, they stifle innovation. They're, they're you know, scroungy. <laughs> I hate to say, use the term that you hate, probably ambulance chasers, but that's how I've always seen lawyers. Now, on the other yeah. hand, I know that like large corporations, if they knew that they were limited on liability, they'd just calculate the cost of that liability and almost like build damage into their products, kind of like the old exploding Ford Pinto thing, you know? Right, so is right. There, I mean, is it a good idea that we're going to provide these protections or is it? Well, it, you know, what you're getting at is you're getting at economics, you're getting at the coast theorem, and you're saying, look, if, uh, uh, if we were left to private ordering or to bargaining, we would find a way to uh, address this potential liability or uncertainty. It's like the, uh, 
It's like the factory that uh, emits smoke or pollution. Um, if we didn't know which way it would we'd go, you know, which way uh, are, are, are you going to be liable for putting out the smoke or do I have to pay you to stop putting out the smoke because you've got the property right? When we don't know where those rights are, we'd probably negotiate and find a way to uh, deal with that uh, on, our, on our own. And one of the problems in this area is that you've got potentially many people that are uh, engaged in um, uh, uh, commercial activities and uh, human contact. And so one approach would be just to engage in some form of private ordering. So we could use some form of waiver doc, uh, document, you know, so we could contract with one another to say that, hey, I'm going to provide this opportunity for you to come and see um, an athletic competition. And in exchange, you've got to forego any legal right that you may have to uh, compensation to the extent you make a claim that I am negligent in failing to protect you from flying baseballs or in this case flying germs right so we can we can deal with it through a private ordering type approach and that's the waiver uh, you know uh, option um, and we can do that when I have people that are are going to come in contact with me that we could um, have some kind of an agreement, etc. There's a little bit of friction there, but in many cases we have to have an agreement anyway to um, come to the stadium. Uh, maybe we're going to be participating uh, as a student. Maybe we'll be participating as a student athlete. Uh, we can make agreements uh, in that nature, or you can have government intervene and say, hey, look, we're going to uh, displace the role of private ordering, and we're going to provide a single solution in the form of, uh, in the, the Safe to Work Act, the Senate bill that was uh, brought out last week, it's like, well, we're going to displace all state law causes of actions. We're going to make it all federal. Uh, we're going we're gonna to have stringent pleading rules. We're going to uh, have federal courts, not state courts, reviewing this. Um, we're going to have a, a, a higher standard of proof. We're going to have, a, a, instead of a preponderance standard, uh, we'll have a higher standard. So you really have to prove your case. And what does that do? Well, that shifts the protections in favor of the businesses. Now, it's not a unilateral, uh, I mean, it's not, it's not without some benefits. I mean, you lose your protection if you'd be grossly negligent. You have to show that you're taking appropriate care. You have to show that you're already, you know, you're, you're in compliance with the applicable um, guidelines. Um, so we're, what we're really saying is we're, we're, uh, what, what tort law is supposed to do in any event is look at benefits and burdens associated with, with uh, activities. And we're just substituting a legislative solution for that. Um, is that a good idea? I guess I leave it to you. It depends on how well you trust that other system. And I, I think there's, there's reason to believe that we've got some um, outlying uh, 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 legal judgments that are out there uh, that are potentially, um, you know, bankrupting companies. Um, a, a lot of people, I have a lot of friends in the European Union, and whenever the subject uh, comes around to uh, looking at U.S. Uh, court systems and U.S. tort systems, um, 
they don't have a lot of confidence. Uh, if you're doing business in the United States, you're, you're very concerned about uh, the potential uh, liability risks that come from uh, tort exposures. And so I think that's really uh, lurking in the background here as well. So, okay, I'll read a, universities, I'm gonna read a part of an article I found. Universities are asking student athletes to sign waivers. For example, at Ohio State, football players must sign a Buckeye pledge, in quotes. Yeah. Asking players to promise to take responsibility for their own health and acknowledge that they can never be completely protected by the university from COVID-19. Now, a lot of people are complaining, you know, sports writers, I guess I'm a part-time sports writer who really don't understand law, which is why I'm interviewing you, that this takes away all the liability from the university. And it, it really doesn't because of like, I don't know, what is it? Reckless disregard? I don't know. The yeah, sure. uh, explain a well, little I, bit where the, the gray areas are with this. Okay, so um, essentially what we're talking about, first of all, I think um, that might have been a Wall Street Journal article. I, I remember reading something about that uh, two or three weeks ago. Um, and the interesting thing about the Buckeye Pledge was that it really wasn't a liability waiver. It was more um, designed, I think, to um, reinforce or get the students to think about their own um, uh, behavior and their own responsibility for um, behaving sensibly. Uh, I, I think this is something that all of us are, are a little bit worried about. Uh, young people are going to continue to be young people. Uh, I mean, at Creighton, we have all these restrictions and rules, et cetera, about how they're going to behave. But you got to believe in the evening, they're going to talk with each other. Uh, boys are going to meet girls. Uh, all those things are going to happen. So I think the Buckeye Pledge maybe is a separate category. But all right, let's assume that you're in that category and you're saying, look, I, I, I'm genuinely hesitant about engaging in a sports program that is going to bring uh, people in contact with one another. Now, you know, if I'm playing baseball, I think I can social distance. If I'm playing football, not so much, right? So there are some sports where you're going to have basketball, close contact uh, with other people. So there's benefits to everyone for, from participating in that. There's health benefits from strength and training and other things, um, but there's also this potential risk that happens. Uh, so when you're looking at the liability waiver, so it would be a good spot for a waiver, right? Because you have people that are going to voluntarily undertake this new activity. You first of all wanna say, okay, what's the waiver telling me? You know. In, in my view, the Buckeye Pledge didn't waive anything. It's just saying I'm really responsible and I can't protect you from everything. That's true. Welcome to my world, right? But you'd have to say, what's the waiver going to cover? So we're going to look very, we'll have to look at very carefully about what it covers and who it covers. Because waivers can just protect uh, the party like the university but you probably want to expand it out to protect individuals that may come in contact. You may also want to expand it out to include claims against fellow athletes. You know, so you, you, you could have a waiver environment that is uh, going, uh, first of all, to define what you're waiving because you're giving up some kind of a legal right to make a claim. And then you're looking at who is covered. Um, you want it to be clear. You want it to be a situation where uh, also, what are you waving from? Presumably, 
you're going to find it against public policy or otherwise violating your scope of your state laws in this case, if you're waiving from grossly negligent behavior. So in other words, we're looking at, um, uh, I was just looking at some uh, case law on this uh, in advance of this uh, little program here. And there was a a nice uh, discussion of that gross negligence in a, in a uh, lawsuit against a, um, a health club. Uh, a woman falls off a treadmill in a health club, and they had a liability uh, waiver in that case. And um, so they're talking about great or excessive negligence indicates an absence of even slight care in the performance of duty. So we're looking at uh, uh, requiring people to behave appropriately within the bounds of reducing reasonable risks. And that waiver from the Buckeye, uh, the, the Buckeye waiver is really kind of telling you, look, we're, we're going to try to um, take appropriate precautions, but we can't do everything. And I think therein lies the problem, right? You know that in a, in a world that requires social distancing, you're not going to be social distancing. So right. will that be deemed to be grossly negligent um, uh, if you have a, if you have sickness or illness, will the appropriate uh, screening uh, mechanisms that you use, you know, temperature screening, uh, the app that we use, et cetera, uh, maybe even testing, would that be viewed as necessary? So there's a little bit of uncertainty when you get to those waivers, when it comes to the scope of what does gross negligence mean? Because under state law, it might not uh, protect you to have a waiver if the activity is such that it's going to require you to uh, be in contact with others. And I think that's another reason behind this um, push toward federal legislation. Um, there's an area where uh, we're, we're just unsure whether the state uh, is able to pass its own laws or deal with that. Now, should that be, as a question of federalism, should we just leave that to the states? Should we say, hey, that's a matter for your state to uh, figure out? Um, but then if we, if we do that, if we leave it on a state-by-state -state basis, we may not be able to play uh, uh, sports across state lines, right? Right. This is in incredibly complex then. I mean, we tend to, you know, as lay people, as I am, a non-lawyer, uh, you tend to look at it and go, well, they should protect them or they should not protect them. Everybody makes their own choices. And really what you're basically saying is this is very incredibly complex. And that's why lawyers bill by the hour. <laughs> Well, yeah, we'd build by the word if we could. But, yeah. um, you know, the thing, about, I'm fascinated with this, uh, the federal legislation here, because um, uh, the, the legislation itself uh, articulates the, the foundation for this as being rooted in the Commerce Clause. So we're looking at interstate commerce. Um, also looking at the ro uh, role of federal courts, they're, they're, they're trying to remove all jurisdiction of these kinds of claims to federal courts. But we're, uh, the, the commerce power itself presents some um, interesting constraints because we want to not only defend um, uh, hospitals, universities, obviously universities, when you've got intercollegiate athletics going on, that's interstate commerce, right? Because it's right. going across state lines, et cetera. But it's also defending churches. Now, um, I mean, I go to mass in, in Omaha, so uh, 
uh, and I live in Iowa, so I'm crossing state lines. There is some of that. But many religious institutions, if you have a small congregation, it's going to be purely intrastate. So there's a legitimate question there about whether the federal power extends to uh, causes of actions that would arise out of that uh, limited environment. So this thing may never be resolved, but what it will do is it will create a lot of friction that you'll have to overcome if you want to make one of these claims. And... um, uh, that friction itself is a is a deterrent. I, I call it you throw sand in the bearings, and that keeps things from moving. And so it's which bearings do you want to throw sand in? Do you want to throw sand in the bearings of the side of uh, the the the, the uh, litigation side? Those people who are empowering litigation, class actions, etc. Um, there's there's pluses and minuses about that. You have people that are legitimately injured, and so are you telling them? Uh, you know, go pound sand, it's your own problem, fix it. Or do you want to uh, uh, throw sand in the bearings of business, industry, religious institutions, nonprofits, universities, etc., that are trying to open up and move forward in an environment where, uh, just like the Buckeye Pledge, we know that we cannot guarantee everyone's safety. And, um, and by the way, even if we thought uh, we could do it on our own, we, we can't because there are so many, as I, as I alluded to at the beginning of our conversation, there are so many other points of contact, causes, et cetera, that the federal legislation is going to require as part of your pleading requirement that the plaintiff puts down everywhere they went for 14 days before they, uh, or every contact they had for 14 days before they contracted the virus. So we're gonna we're already gonna give the other side saying, well, wait a minute, you know, you 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 went to this wrestling match, or uh, you went to uh, ladies' night at the pub, um, you know, there's so many other places you could have contracted disease, and, and and that's also a problem. Oh my God, this is this is much more painful than I thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry. Welcome to my world. Uh, so, I mean, if you're a decision maker, if you're, if let's, I, let's say you're running the university of Nebraska, so I don't get you in trouble with your own university. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what is going to fall into you making decisions? What is going to be the determining factors on even having at, or students come back and, and go into the dorms? I mean, what are the let's say the, the bars you have to jump over for student athletes to compete in different sports. And are they going to be different in different sports? Does the complexity go that far or do you just say, try to make it as simple as possible? Well, you know, I guess my approach might be a little different than, uh, uh, than some, because I really think that we have to calibrate our risks when we're thinking about uh, the coronavirus. Um, we know that, first of all, life is not risk-free. So uh, if I get in my car and I drive to my office in Omaha, uh, I'm going to travel on the interstate. Uh, I'm going to be uh, driving uh, uh, with other cars. I can't control that. Um, There's a risk of bodily injury and death that's associated with that. Um, But I am personally making a trade-off every time, right? 
because I think, well, the good that I get out of uh, interacting with my colleagues, um, working with my students, not to mention the fact that I get to earn a living doing that, that's kind of important to me. So I'm glad to have the opportunity to bear that risk and to, and to participate in those activities that are human goods. Um, to me, there's a risk-reward trade-off. The problem with the coronavirus is that for so many people, we're looking at risks in an absolute sense. So in other words, I just want to eliminate all my risks. Well, the only way you can eliminate all your risk is to stop living, right? And so unfortunately, there's different demographics associated with the risk. If you're a young person and healthy, from all the indications, I'm not a medical expert, but from what we're seeing here, uh, the risks of serious bodily injury or death coming to you from contracting the coronavirus, it's not uh, eliminated, but it's very, very, very low. So having that opportunity for young people to get together, to learn, to participate in, in athletics, think about it, you only get so many years of, uh, if you're a college athlete, many of those young people have invested a lot of their time and talent and treasure, by the way, because parents have put them through club sports and other kinds of things so they can be good athletes. And, and then you get to, uh, you know, your years of college eligibility and suddenly, you know, an injury can put you out and now COVID puts you out. So there's no way for you to play or no way to compete. Um, that's a real damage or real loss. So I think I would, err on the side of saying, hey, let's open this up, give people chances to do this, but also, hey, I'm giving you opportunities. Um, you have to give me something in return, and that is that you're willing to assume some risks that are not uh, perpetrated by me, not made worse by me, but that just are an inherent part of the activity. Um, you know, you, you want to go skydiving? Hey, there's a small chance the plane's going to crash. Um, um, is that because of my gross negligence? Well, then maybe that's on the airplane company. But if it's because of uh, an unexplained, you know, uh, a flock of Canadian geese. Um, I have friends and I have a pasture out here that's full of Canadian geese about half the mornings. I, I have some friends in Canada. I've been really tempted to take pictures of them and saying, hey, you know, your countrymen are invading my pasture. Um, but the whole thing is, I think, a balancing approach. and. Um, I just don't know that uh, our leaders of institutions are balancing appropriately. I think we're being awfully risk averse because of fear, uh, because of fear of legal liability, but also fear of demagoguery. Uh, if something happens and you tried it and it turns out poorly, they think, gee, I'm gonna be blamed. And if it turns out well, it'll be, well, wanna get some coffee? That's the problem. Yes, I, you know, everybody has hindsighted this thing to death, you know, and yeah. it, it happens on a weekly, you know, almost an hourly basis if you go on Twitter. Uh, I, I don't see, I guess you look at your decision makers, no matter what level they are, and you kind of understand why they're a little gun shy, but at the same time, they do have to make decisions. I mean, that's why they're leaders. That's, you know, as we say, that's why they get paid the big bucks. Uh, I'm not sure where if I'm glad if I have a question there, but 
I, no, I, I, I think really this is, you know, this virus came at a very difficult time for us socially because I think we were already very polarized and uh, couple that with, uh, you have a mainstream media that is always looking for blood, you know? We're always looking for, uh, you know, I don't know if any of your people watched the, uh, uh, the coverage of the SpaceX launch uh, two months ago and then it's returned to Earth. And uh, I, I was just glued on it. I mean, I, you know, I was born in 1962, so the space program and landing on the moon, I was a pretty little kid, but I was very inspired by it. And it's like I'm returning to childhood. I have a five-year-old grandson. I'm not sure if he or me was more uh, excited about this thing. But what was it? It was a, it's a culture of achievement. It's great human triumphs. Uh, you know, where is that in our, where is that in our headlines? Almost nowhere. It was all based on what bad things are happening, et cetera. So you start to, you start to live in that environment for very long and you realize what's going to get attention. And, uh, I mean, there are some leaders out there. I think, uh, Mitch Daniels at uh, Purdue, he, he's been very out in front on this. Um, there's some other institutions, I, I don't want to name names, but, um, uh, you know, there have been people who have uh, uh, been willing to sort of put those uh, criticisms aside. But um, you, you've got a lot of uh, factions that feel very empowered uh, to criticize. Uh, they have gained um, uh, attention from both mainstream media and from uh, alternative social media forces that has empowered uh, more criticism. In some ways this can be good because we can air a bigger debate, but um, um, it, we, we, I don't think we've quite learned how to deal with all of this technology and uh, uh, make it work uh, to have a proper kind of intelligent conversation and debate. You know, it's, it's almost impossible to do that with uh, Twitter things going back and forth. I, I don't do Twitter uh, because I think it's silly uh, and I don't want to descend into that uh, environment. But uh, unless we can have conversations uh, that are allowing us to listen to one another, hear one another, I think it's going to be very hard to navigate our way through uh, public policy problems like this. So what do you what do you see happen from let's say from the st federal government standpoint? Do you see any kind of protections being passed? Do you see any kind of? I mean, it uh, seems like they have to do something just to jumpstart the economy, and maybe everybody that's on the side of listen to the epidemiologists, we're all going to die. That's bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. I I look uh, at this, and and you hear these constant people on on well, God help us, Facebook or social media. It's yeah. always listen to the scientists and science has so many different facets to it that, um, you know, which yeah, part but, I mean, let's just face it. The scientists have come out with egg on their face uh, throughout this event. Right. I, I mean, first of all, the CDC changes its views on masks. Now some people are saying, well, uh, we've, uh, we learned, Oh no, you told us the reason you told us not to wear it is because you're worried about the, population running out and getting things. So in other words, you don't trust people with real information. So you're going to feed them falsehood. You start out with that premise that erodes your, uh, uh, your credibility. You have all the public health leaders saying, Hey, don't go to church. 
um, uh, because, and don't sing, for goodness sake, because you might put vapor in the air, but feel free to gather and riot. Um, so, you know, look, when we say we're following science, I, I think that's false. I don't think we're doing that because it's too, um, too infused with, um, with politics. And, um, so, uh, uh, I'm not sure where that leads us, but I, I think that's just part of the, part of the problem here, um, that, uh, we're, we're unable really to have these, um, uh, appropriate, uh, trusting relationships. I, I think it was true in the beginning of the epidemic. Look how people voluntarily conformed. We all said, "Okay, we'll work. We'll work with you. We'll trust you, etc." But I think some of that trust is is eroding. Ooh. So when you go back to your things about policy and your things about how the complexity of all these issues, I mean, it sounds like this thing is whatever lawsuits or whatever's going to happen is going to be tied up in courts for a, a very long time. Yeah. It, 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 um, that's the problem with litigation, right? It, it takes a very long time to resolve itself. Um, you've got, uh, I mean, the, you, you, going back to your question about what do I think is going to happen in these areas? It's, it's just very difficult to get, uh, agreement on something that is going to uh, potentially jeopardize the uh, interests of uh, a special interest class, the trial lawyer group. Um, it, it's going to be, uh, w which has a lot of support uh, from one of the parties. Right. Uh, and so th that's going to be difficult. We're gonna have to, we have two houses, so we've got to get cooperation with both of them. Uh, it, and, and we're doing that in the shadow of a very uncertain time. We have an election coming up very soon. So I think getting something done in all that area, unless it's like part of some kind of a grand compromise that's going to be part of uh, some form of economic uh, benefits or legislation. I mean, I, I guess we're, we're all Keynesians now. We're, we're, all, we're all spending uh, a lot of federal treasure. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like a wartime, though. I mean, I, even the people who are fiscal, I'm a fiscal conservative, and I, I, I don't like to see uh, large deficit spending. But if, if, you're, if you have to do it in a, for a short period to, to alleviate uh, human suffering and other things, I think that's, that's uh, we're, we're thrust into it. Uh, but, you know, longer term, we're going to have to come up with uh, sustainable things. And I, I think one of the problems in this area and one of the problems in uh, constantly providing government intervention in, in the form of relief is that you run out of other people's money to spend. Right. And once that happens, then people have to start internalizing their own risk-reward balances. You know, I think we're seeing that right now in the uh, right. conversations about uh, uh, do, we, do we send the kids back to school? Well, um, uh, I understand uh, the concerns of the teachers' unions, but on the other hand, if, if the alternative was I stay home and don't get paid or I stay home and get paid anyway, whether I go in and teach or not, I think those are two different incentive structures, right? It would affect the way you uh, might want to approach or embrace that risk. Um, and so bottom line, I think we got to try to get people to internalize those costs as much as we can, uh, help the vulnerable, help the people who can't make those choices for themselves. But 
for many of us. We're healthy, strong, uh, have pretty good immune systems, and uh, we can still social distance and do the wash our hands, make appropriate judgments, and we have to move forward because uh, what else do we have left? Um, right. Stay in our house. Okay, I'm going to surprise you with this one. Creighton doesn't have a football team. Do you root for the Nebraska Cornhuskers or not? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I tell you what, I, uh, I like to see the Huskers succeed. I think you've got a great coach there. Um, uh, you have a great tradition uh, in Nebraska. I, you know, I, I grew up here on the Iowa side. I live on the farm where I grew up. And um, uh, the, the, you have, you've had such uh, amazing uh, characters in your history. The big fan of Tom Osborne. Uh, and you, 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 when you have great leaders that are trying to do well, uh, you cheer for people like that, uh, irrespective of whether you like other teams. So um, uh, I uh, certainly wish them well. I, I don't really. You're, you're being very diplomatic here. I don't really, I'm not that big of a, of a football fan. I, okay. I um, uh, you know, my kids, I got, Creighton has a soccer team, right? I, I, I bought season tickets. I, we have five kids. They've, they've all gone to Creighton. And um, I would take them. I had basketball tickets. I had season tickets. We would all go. Uh, and I'm like, at the soccer games, I'm, I'm trying to like get, get a newspaper read. You know, you could do that at baseball. But with the soccer, I mean, the, maybe the only significant Point score will be happen one time, and it's like, well, if I'm going to watch it on the jumbotron, why not watch it on TV? So I always kind of embarrassed my kids because I always found something more interesting than the sport itself. But this is just how deeply flawed I am, you know. I'm hoping as a grandparent, I can I can atone for my sins as a parent. You know, maybe I'll be better I, next time around. I don't know. There you go. Okay, I have to ask everybody this because it's a required question. Do you think I'll rephrase it for the sake of Creighton University's lack of a football team? Do you think we'll have fall college sports at all in any form? Uh, I think we will, um, but it's hard to know. This the, the latest outbreaks and such uh, have have gotten a lot of people worried. But um, again, I think we're we're um, going to be looking at uh, some hard forces here that are going to nudge people toward trying. And that is one, the sheer economics of it. Um, college sports bring in a lot of revenue and there's a lot of costs associated with not doing it. Second, I think there's always, there's always the student athlete here. And I think if you ask uh, coaches, athletic director, I mean, uh, our, our athletic director, Creighton, uh, Bruce Rasmussen, is one of the finest human beings on the planet. They just don't make people that good. And I know that Bruce cares deeply about our students and the well-being of our student athletes. And I think that those considerations, again, are gonna go both ways. On the one hand, we don't wanna expose people to disease, but on the other hand, this is a great time of your life. It's a great opportunity. If we can find ways for you to do your sport and your passion, um, uh, you know, people are going to be trying to do that. So uh, it remains to be seen. Uh, uh, fortunately, I don't get to make the decisions, and I don't have to make those decisions. It's going to be <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, should we be done? That sounds like a good ending. All right. Well, Is there I, uh, anything else that I might have forgotten? No, I think we've, uh, uh, we've, we've covered the field pretty well, uh, and we've had a rollicking uh, uh, tour of very many uh, issues. So 
Uh, I hope I haven't. Uh, I hope I haven't digressed on too many rabbit trails. Uh, it's it's not that long. I mean, Joe Rogan goes for like five hours with Alex Jones. I you know I I couldn't do that. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway. This has been John's Post-Life Crisis. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Dr. Or Professor Ed Morse for joining me. Go Big Red. This is where you say go Crate and Blue Jays or something. Well, go Jays and go Big Red too. How about that? That's very, very diplomatic again.